This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, It's time for Evidence for Faith, the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are sponsored in part by Grace Community Church of Waterford Works, New Jersey. You can check us out on Evidence for Faith website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. Well, our topic is, why do people believe what they believe? And it's part of a series that Kirk and I have been doing about critical thinking because of a study that showed that many college students are not being taught how to think critically, even after four years of college. So that piqued my interest, and we began talking about logic and thinking skills and why people believe the things they do, what makes a good argument. So we've been looking at that. If you're interested and want to join that conversation with us, you can call us at 609-398-1020. But a couple of news items, Kirk, before we get there. And I guess we usually start off with a quote of the day, so we'll do that. This is a quote that I received from Apologetics 315 website, and it's by Albert Moeller on Science and Christianity. And he says, are science and Christianity friends? The answer to that is an emphatic yes. For any true science will be perfectly compatible with the truths we know by God's revelation. But this science is not naturalistic, while modern science usually is. That's from Albert Moeller. All right, there is a Something coming up locally, if you're listening locally and you're between the ages of 13 and 18, there is a that world lets view. us out, huh? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I'd love to go, actually. I'm thinking of just dropping in and checking it out sometime. <laughs> but this is coming up this summer, July 17th to the 22nd at the Philadelphia Biblical University, which is at Langhorne, PA which is not too far from where we are right now. And it's put on by an organization called Worldview Academy. So you can check out the information and register at the website worldview.org and look for the link to leadership camps for ages 13 through 18. I know my boys went to one of these when they were around 15, 16 years old, and they had a blast. They do a good job there at Worldview uh, Academy. All right. Well, some more news. I received from the Heritage Foundation some information about Detroit, and it's really a shame what has happened to Detroit. And this is a brief analysis about the liberal agenda and the hard-left politics that have nearly destroyed the city. It says, 
What happens when a city buys the liberal dream hook, line, and sinker? Just take a look at the city of Detroit. The once great city lost 237,000 residents over the last decade, according to the 2010 census, bringing it down to 713,000, a population plunge of 25%. Wow. It's, yeah. And this is That's just that. the city itself. Just the city of Detroit. Okay. It's the lowest population since 1910. Wow. Yeah. And it had reached its peak population in 1950. So from that peak of 2 million, it's the population has fallen 60%. Wow. They highlight the fact that the big three automakers are no longer the biggest. They've fallen behind their rivals overseas. The Michigan economy lost 450,000 manufacturing jobs over the last 10 years. The city suffers from crime, high taxes, poor city services, plummeting home values. If you've seen some of the photographs that people are just walking away from their homes, they're just abandoned. They're all, the houses are all collapsing and run down because there's just nobody living there. Right. The public education system is in a shambles and it has a $327 million budget deficit and a 19% dropout rate. Oof. So, incredible. Isn't that interesting the way it seems like always, uh, well, not always, but in a lot of cases, when the the taxes in places keep going up, but the services keep going down? Well, and, yeah, the services, though, go up for poor people, which, what does that do? That brings in more poor people who are (laughs) outside the area and are looking for the freebies. Okay. It induces people not to work. Right. Here's here's some of the uh, problems that they mention that are roadblocks to today. The political machine that helped deliver it, the state, to its ruin. Case in point, the state's powerful teachers' unions. In 2003, a philanthropist pledged $200 million for the creation of 15 charter schools in the city. Wow. Yeah. Despite the city's tragic public school system, the plan failed and the offer was withdrawn following protests by the Detroit Federation of Teachers. Why do you think they would protest new schools being built? Because Um, they would lose control of the teachers. The teachers would have more jobs. They'd be competing. They'd wind up with higher pay due to competition and... They wouldn't need the unions. So the unions made sure that the teachers were dependent on them and nixed the plan. You did say that these would be charter schools they wanted to build, right? Exactly. So they would compete schools. with the public schools, kind of. That's right. That's right. Yep. Wow. So, the, uh, so rather than have healthy competition that would uh, increase and, and more spending, which would increase teacher salaries, nope. They decided, no, we want control. Control is more important. Wow. Then they go on to say little has changed. Eight years later, a state-appointed emergency financial manager has proposed sweeping changes to the city's public school system, including a plan to convert 41 of the city's schools to charter schools. Guess who's opposing the reforms? The Uh, very same union. Uh Uh-huh. 
Yeah, because they're they don't care about better schools. They only care about power and money. They really care about themselves and not the students, not the exactly. welfare of the students. Yep. They've got a new governor, Rick Snyder, who has embarked on efforts to change the way that the state does business, tax reforms, and spending cuts. Guess what? Unions, once again, with Wisconsin-style protests, are trying to block him. I wish him luck. Yeah, really. So the article ends with the Washington Examiner's Michael Barone writes, now listen to this quote. This is very, very interesting. He says, quote, when people ask me why I moved from being a liberal to being a conservative, my single word answer is Detroit. <laughs> the liberal policies which I hoped would make Detroit something like heaven have made it instead something more like hell. <laughs> is that incredible? Wow. Well, we've got a caller on the line, so I guess we'll break here for take this call. Caller, okay. go ahead. No malice. I have heard uh, a great uh, uh, statement, very intelligent people, and I like it. But here's one thing I'm speaking of, not opinion, of fact. The powers that be, remember, you can say it's conservative, liberal, anything you want. But over the past hundreds of years, we had Democrat and Republicans spent the money, not the conservative, or so forth, or the liberal. These were the parties that actually spent the money, declared war, and made the laws. Now... I'm going to say this and make it very clear. Until today and the past, until these Republicans have at least of the power and the people there, you get them on board. If you do not, they're going to sabotage it. Now, Detroit. I know about Detroit. Guess what? I've been a mechanic all my life. What happens when I lost my home down in Monmouth County, right before my Red Bank? They got oil sitting out there, the oil companies. And we lost everything because of this game. Were the Democrats and Republicans working together? They have an energy policy. You aware how many billions of acres of land that they have? They haven't drilled on. Do we really know this game? When are we going to stand up and say, men and women today, I'll say it without fear, in the past 10 years, we have two wars. And we have this huge. Well, caller, I tell you what, I'm going to give you a chance to stand up right now because there's something before the Atlantic County Freeholder Board that needs to be taken care of. Have you heard about this new thing? They just passed this legislation, the first reading, which means that next week it's going to pass. This is going to raise our taxes and provide to provide housing for homeless people that they well, listen, say, quote, listen, is going to cure homelessness. Now, Have you I heard that? that's where you're going. First of all, like you're saying, in Detroit, they walk away. You know why? Because I tried to tell you before, they were divided, no energy prices. We sold our industry to uh, Europe, and George Bush gave them money to move, but we won't stand on that. So you know why the towns are going to go down this way? Because the majority, in one or more, are not going to stand up and face one another and said, look, Republican, we are half of this. We had two wars going and spent the money. Let's work with the Democrats. That's what the country needs. But you know what? The pundits are not going to do it, and I don't think the majority is going to do it. 
So I'm never going to worry, just like the walls of Jericho. Things are going to go down to other towns going to go because the people here are well, so hard, this majority, so hard in their ways. They dominate the airways, and they won't stand up. But you know what? I'm not worrying anymore. More towns like Michigan can go down. Then they well, let's let's try and make sure that that doesn't happen to Atlantic City or Atlantic County. And I, I want to thank you for calling, caller. That you know we share your concerns, and I'm telling you, it's happening right here in Atlantic County. The Board of Freeholders has passed a first reading on Ordinance Number Seven Dash Two Thousand Eleven. I can't believe what they're trying to do, Kirk. I don't know if you've heard about this. But listen to some of the stuff that's in this. It says, whereas county administration and the freeholder board believe that the establishment and funding of a county homelessness trust fund and the resulting programs are efficacious in these difficult economic times. Do you get that? They think that it's a good idea when it's when we're having difficult economic times to increase taxes and increase the size of government. Right. Like, who's who's going to implement all of this stuff, and how many more people do they have to hire, and how many more committees are going to be formed, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, exactly right. And guess, guess what it says in here. They, they're going to create this county homelessness trust fund task force, which says, quote, to end homelessness. Now, they're living in a, a fantasy world if they think they're going to end homelessness. <laughs> People fall into homelessness and rise out of it. It's true, there are some people who, because of mental problems or drug addictions that simply are incapable of you know, living a regular life. Right. There are people like that, and those people can be housed. Right. But this doesn't talk about those people. It says that, you know what they consider the definition of homeless pe- person is, quote, someone who is, includes temporarily in the home of another household or right. in a motel. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, so let's get this right. Let's say you sold your four-bedroom or five-bedroom home and you're buying a new home, but the sale hasn't gone through, or maybe you're building yourself a new home, and it's going to take nine months. So meanwhile, you move into your friend's house or your mother and father's house. Guess what? You're considered you're homeless. for free housing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> is this insane? Yes, it's insane. And, and, and what is the Atlantic uh, City Rescue Mission involved with this at all, or are they just totally bypassing them well they're opening it up you can come on the task force if you're uh if you belong to a nonprofit organization that deals with homeless people okay but at least three people on this task force must be homeless or formally homeless okay if you're homeless why would i be wanting to take your advice (laughs) Now, okay, maybe there might be somebody who's qualified that we ought to listen to who's had the experience of being homeless, but that's it says that they they can be homeless right now and we should listen to what they have to say about avoiding homelessness. So they're they're going to create another huge bureaucracy to deal with homelessness. Exactly. Instead and of dealing directly with homeless people. 
And guess who gets to appoint people to this task force? I'm afraid to guess. <laughs> well, it's County Executive Dennis Levinson. Okay. So he gets to appoint anyone he wants to to this task force. Uh-huh. Is, if they fit into any of that criteria, maybe they're um, participants in a local government. Maybe they've helped with some campaign funds. They can fit. He can squeeze them on this homelessness trust fund task force. Oh, my gosh. Yep. So you don't have to be homeless. You just have to be. In fact, somewhere it says here, at risk of homelessness. There we go. Yep, here it is. Quote, at risk of homelessness. Okay. So you get affordable <laughs> housing for homeless persons or families, including those at risk of homelessness. So you don't even have to be homeless. You can rent out your home. Let's say if you lost your job and you're on unemployment, rent out your home, and the county will provide you with housing. Well, you've got this a little really bit of time sounds like to another stop excuse, this. Just another excuse to raise taxes and spend money. Right, right. <sighs> that is not the way we, we do not need to go the way of Detroit. And of course our politicians are running everything so well right now that we should give them another job to do, right? <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> so write letters to the editors, call up your freeholder board members that you know, or show up at the public meeting, which will be April 5th at the Municipal Complex in Obsekin at 4 p.m. on April 5th to voice your concerns. That is just crazy. Just what we need, more government. Yep. Yep. All right, a couple more news items. Let's see. Why don't we do the happiness news item? That's a good one. That's from the Wall Street Journal. This is pretty cool. You know, on this radio show and the website, we like to talk about how the Christian worldview leads to personal happiness and societal benefits that lead to communities and the well-being and flourishing of humankind. Here's a terrific analysis by the Wall Street Journal. It was published March 13th by Shirley Wang titled, Is Happiness Overrated? And it's an analysis of about three studies that have been done recently on happiness. And it opens by saying, the relentless pursuit of happiness may be doing more harm than good. <laughs> Some researchers say happiness has people, as people usually think of it, the experience of pleasure or positive feelings, what we would call and this is uh, me talking now, what we would call fun. Okay, back to the, the article here. It says, is far less important to physical health than the type of well-being that comes from engaging in meaningful activity. Okay. Or maybe what something like Christians would call joy. Okay. Researchers refer to this, la- this latter state as eudaimonic well-being. Okay, from the, the Greek word eudaimonia, which just means well-being. It says, some of the newest evidence suggests that people who focus on living with a sense of purpose as the age are more likely to remain cognitively intact, have better mental health, and even live longer than people who focus on achieving feelings of happiness. Okay. So if you're out there for fun, pleasure, 
and you think that's going to lead to happiness, it's, you're actually harming yourself. But if you have purpose in life, the kind of joy and purpose and meaning that Christianity brings to life, then uh, you wind up having many health benefits. Let's see, they mention one study. They say, for instance, symptoms of depression, paranoia, and psychopathology have increased among generations of American college students from 1938 to 2007, according to a statistical review published in 2010 in Clinical Psychology Review. Researchers at San Diego State University who conducted the analysis pointed to increasing cultural emphasis in the U.S. on materialism and status, which emphasize hedonic happiness, okay, hedonism basically, right, and decreasing attention to community and meaning in life as possible explanations. So what, what you're really it? saying basically is that selfishness doesn't really get you far in life. If your whole yeah, life is wrapped around selfish, you know, pleasure for yourself, pleasure it's going to close your problems down the road. Yeah, that's right. Pleasure-seeking and believing that there's no purpose in life, like atheism and naturalism posit that there is no meaning to life. These things, thinking this way, leads to a shortened life. So, <laughs> huh, it's funny. Evolution must be trying to tell us something. Gee, you think? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, study number two, they say since 1995, Dr. Riff and her Wisconsin team have been studying some 7,000 individuals and examining factors that influence health and well-being from middle age through old age in a study called MIDAS, or the Midlife in U.S. Study of Americans. Okay, What this shows is that even if you have risk factors that are normally associated with disease, like a low education level, it shows that participants with a low education level, but if they had greater eudaimonic well-being or that joy, that purpose in life, had lower levels of an inflammatory marker for disease associated with cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, and Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. And yeah, wow. So. And e even taking into consideration their risk factors such as low education level. Hmm. So it overcomes all kinds of things that people can't really do much about. They still benefit if they have purpose in life, if they don't try to seek fun for fun's sake. Then the third study that they mention is David Bennett director of the Alzheimer Disease Center at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, and his colleagues showed that eudaimonic well-being, okay, that joy, that well-being, conferred benefits related to Alzheimer's. Over a seven-year period, those reporting a lesser sense of purpose in life were more than twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's disease compared with those reporting greater purpose in life according to an analysis published in the journal Archives of General Psychiatrist. The study involved 950 individuals with a mean age of about 80 at the start of the study. No kidding. Yeah, it's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Then in a, a separate analysis of the same group of subjects, researchers found that with greater purpose in life, they were less likely to be impaired in carrying out living and mobility functions like housekeeping, managing money, walking up or down stairs, and over a five-year period, they were significantly less likely to die 
by some 57% than those with low purpose in life. Wow. So then it says the link persisted even after researchers took into account variables that could be related to well-being and happiness, such as depressive symptoms, neuroticism, medical conditions, and income. So so if you had some of those, they can't say that, well, this is because these other people who don't have purpose in life have depression and things. They said they, they, they allowed for that, and they still still doesn't help. Yeah. So then there's, at the end, there's a little analysis I thought was important. It says the two types of well-being aren't necessarily at odds, and there is an overlap. Striving to live a meaningful life or to do good works should bring about a feeling of happiness, of course. But people who primarily seek extrinsic rewards, such as money or status, often aren't as happy, according to Richard Ryan, professor of psychology and psychiatry and education at the University of Rochester. Yeah. And then they say, now the question then is, well, can you fake it? Can you not believe that there's meaning and purpose to life, that we're just accidents here on this planet, and do good works anyway, help people, help the poor, be generous, do those things, become a Christian even though you really don't believe it, those kinds of things, can you fake it? In other words, Uh here's what they say, simply engaging in activities that are likely to promote eudaimonic well-being such as helping others, doesn't seem to yield a psychological benefit if people feel pressured to do them. According to a study Dr. Ryan and a colleague published last year in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, when people say, in the long run, this will get me some reward, that person doesn't get as much benefit, he says. So you can't fake it. If you believe Christianity is true, if you have purpose and meaning in your life, you're going to have better health results, live longer, less likely to get Alzheimer's, and on and on. (laughs) Amazing. So, Yep. So another good reason for examining the truth of Christianity. And isn't that really, it's very similar to something we were just learning today in in church about uh, the, uh, the love chapter of the Bible where it says that, you know, if you give money to the poor and you, you know, deliver yourself up to be burned at the stake, and if you do all this other stuff but you don't have love, then it doesn't matter. It won't help right. you. That's right. really saying the same thing. Yep. If, you, if you're totally self-absorbed in life, then you're, you know, no matter how many good deeds you may make yourself do, it's, it's not going to benefit you at all. But if exactly. you genuinely care about others other than yourself, you're going to be happier and better off. That's, that's, that message is all through the Bible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's get to our topic today. We've been going through reasons why people will accept some arguments, some beliefs, and not accept other beliefs even though they might be might have good evidence there might be good reason to adopt beliefs why don't people believe them okay so let's take a look at some more in our list of things we had finished off last time with 
you know, being misinformed, being actually deceived, having false information. If you've got some kind of background false information that's holding you back, you're going to tend not to believe things that are true that come up that seem to contradict those previous false beliefs. So, right. you know, our advice is to always be skeptical, always be skeptical, not of just new beliefs, but be skeptical of the old beliefs that you hold. Right. Because you might be wrong. Right. Well, another reason is is guilt. Okay? When you feel guilty about past actions, that can lead to some problems. If you if you maybe adopt a new belief where you might have to recognize that what you did was evil. You know, you're telling yourself, well, no, that that really wasn't evil and you know, if I because if I think about it being evil, I'm going to feel guilty. So that creates this, you know, bad feeling, and you don't like that. You don't so, like to think of yourself as being guilty. So, so in other better, words, people are more likely to believe something if it will help to uh, assuage their feelings of guilt, rather than if there's evidence to support it or not. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yep. If it makes me feel better about myself, then I'll believe it. <laughs> yeah, and that, and we're specifically honing in if in the case of, you know, that it might make me feel guilty. Right. So, for instance, you know, when you're trying to witness to people about Christianity, it's a very real problem. They have to recognize that they are sinners. Right. And this is difficult for people. Um, sure. You know, many people really don't see themselves as sinners. They don't. There's just a natural protective mechanism that we don't see ourselves as being guilty. Right. Nobody really sees themselves as a bad person. They always think they have reasons for why they do what they do. Right. Yeah, it's funny what people think about themselves. You know, when they do s studies, like they will ask people, uh, say, how well do you drive? They'll ask a thousand people, <laughs> how well do you drive? Below average, average, or above average? Guess what everybody says? Above average? Yep. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 80 to, 80 to 90% of the people will say they're above average. Try to commute into New York City every day and say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Whew. yep. All right. So, guilt is one reason why people will refuse to accept new beliefs. How about the issue of authority? Right? What if, what if professors have told you? Okay, then why should I accept what you have to say? Okay. Right? Why, why should they accept what we say here on this radio program? After all, my professor told me otherwise. Okay. Or maybe my parents told me. Right. So this or goes a friend of mine ways. who I trust told me something different. <laughs> well, it's, no, we're specifically talking about authority, not, not just a friend. Okay. You know, I mean, that would be a reason to disagree with your friend is because someone in authority told me. Okay, I see. So, okay, you know, that it's great and listening to people in authority is a good thing, but we have to be careful here, basically. Yes. Authority figures can believe things that are wrong, too. Yes, they can because they're human beings just like anyone else. That's right. With so the this same goes foibles and whatever. Yep. Yeah. So this goes for Christians as well as non-Christians. You know, you don't want to 
believe something just because your pastor told you. It was a revelation for me a few years ago when I read in a uh, book I, that it said that not all things that scientists say are scientific. Absolutely. The, the point being, just because a scientist says something doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Right. And many scientists like to dabble in philosophy. Oh, when that's, yeah. That's not their field. A lot of them do. And they're not very good philosophers. Right. Uh, well, it's no wonder they've had no training in the in the field. Sure. And you have the other, the opposite side of the coin. You have people that are basically philosophers trying to make scientific statements. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, if you're going to listen to a, an authority figure, you have to make sure that that authority figure has the qualifications to speak in the field they're, that they're talking about. Right. Just because they've got a PhD after their name doesn't mean that they are qualified to speak in areas outside their, their field. No. One of the great example of this is Richard Dawkins who's a zoologist, constantly speaking outside his field, his field constantly talks about philosophy, philosophy of science, history of science, and many other things that he's not qualified to speak on. And religion. Yet people yes. listen to him because he's got a PhD. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, a big, a big uh, example of that today is uh, Hollywood celebrities. A Hollywood celebrity will come out and say something, and... You know, all their fans will say, "Oh, well, you know, so and so said this, so I believe that." Yeah, that's <laughs> they actually, really look at Hollywood yeah, celebrities excellent. as authority figures of a kind. That's right, and they're not really they're they're mere celebrities. Sure, this is really unjustified. They may have no basis whatsoever for what they say, but just because they're a celebrity, it's like, oh, well, if they said it, it must be true. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> and you know that brings up the issue of some of the celebrities who have been involved in cults. And that takes us right to the next one, if you want to bring that one up, Kirk. Yeah, being part of a cult or propagandized. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, yeah. You get involved with, with uh, a group of people, and, you know, it could start out as like a social thing, but mm -hmm. then uh, you get involved in what they think and what they believe, and it's like after a while it's like, um, it's almost, well, it is like being brainwashed sometimes. Yep. That's how uh, young people often get sucked into cults because, you know, the, the members of the cult may reach out to them and be nice to them and whatever, and they think, oh, these are nice people, and they get involved with them, and then they find out what they believe, and they're like, well, you know, I like these people, so I guess what they're saying must, must you know, have some merit just because I, I like them. <laughs> Right. And before and you the, know it, you're sucked into a whole belief system that could be totally crazy. <laughs> right, right. And then, and then people come along with solid explanations, truthful explanations of a counter-belief, and they're not willing to accept it. Right, you're just not in a position to accept anything contrary. Right. And as an opposite of this, think about people who have escaped from a cult. If you've escaped from a cult, the last thing you want to do is wind up in another cult. Right. So many of these people are hypercritical. Right. They're, they don't want to believe anything. 
In other words, if they were involved in a religious cult, once they get out of that cult, they don't want to hear anything about any kind of religion at all after that. That's right. Even one that's backed by evidence. Sure. So They think all religion is bad. Right. That's right. So, so having been propagandized, either because you are propagandized or you've, you've been propagandized in the past, can be problems right. for why people won't accept true arguments. And we're going to go into detail in what propaganda is and how, how it's done uh, in a later show. All right, how about socialization? Now, we talked about peer pressure in the past as being a reason why people will believe something or not, but there's this idea about, you know, kind of wanting to escape your past upbringing. Now, what I'm thinking of is an example of, say, kids who are leaving a rural community and headed to the big city. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got this fanciful idea that the they want to fit in with the, you know, they want to be modernized. The grass is greener on the other side of the fence, and cities are the place to be, because I've never right. been in a city. <laughs> yep. These are where the cool people live. These are where the hip people are. Right. You know, I've got to get rid of those old-fashioned, provincial, down-home kind of thinking. Right. And, and believe what the real modern people believe. So, <laughs> so and that's really... I got to get happened. out of this hick town. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's that kind of thinking. So they've got this fantasy in their their head that because it's the big city, because it's modernization, because it's the latest thing, that it must be true. City and people have all the answers. That's right. Yeah, C.S. Lewis called this a kind of chronological snobbery. So what's new and hip that must be true. Okay. So, but if it's old. It's got to be false. So all traditions, get rid of them, because that's, that's yesterday. That's right. They're bad and old. Right. So, so obviously that can help you, that can keep you, help keep you from believing things that are really true and believing evidence that supports a belief system that's true, and yet you discount it because of that reason. Right. A lot of people miss the point that the reason a lot of things are traditional is because they're based on something that means something. Yeah. It, That's how they became traditions in the first place. Yeah, because they actually work. Right. It's like the wisdom of the ages. Right. You know, when something works well, people tend to pass it down to their children and their grandchildren and make sure, hey, remember this. Whatever you do, don't forget this Right. tradition right why do they do it because through experience they found out this is what it is and that's one of the things that what the bible has to offer us is the wisdom of the ages the wisdom of thousands of years of hard knocks yeah and what works and what doesn't up until about the 1960s the tendency was to revere older people because they had more experience, they made all the mistakes and figured out what worked and what didn't, and we can trust their advice more. But then in the 1960s, it kind of went the other direction, and all of a sudden it was, don't trust anybody over 30. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yep. And I so think we're that. still kind of in that attitude. Mm-hmm. 
All right. So last on our list of reasons why people will believe things and not believe other things is simple personal convenience. You know, the kind of, well, I can't be bothered. Why do they think this way? Well, because your mind is going to race ahead. If I adopt this belief, what's that going to mean to me personally? Right. What well, am I going to have to change to a whole bunch of things? <laughs> yep. And frankly, it's just too hard. I might have to get up off this couch and go to church Sunday mornings. Right. The, a great example of this is the uh, humanist Mortimer Adler, who actually admitted that this is why he didn't want to be a Christian. Yeah. He said it was just too inconvenient yep. to be a Christian. Well, you know, I have to say, this this sounds kind of silly now, but when I uh, first considered becoming a Christian in my mid-20s, one of the biggest things that held me back for quite a while is that I didn't want to carry a Bible around. <laughs> it's like, people, I don't want to carry a Bible. That's going to make me look, you know, like a religious nut or something. <laughs> right, right. Yep, absolutely. Well, now you can buy an iPod. <laughs> oh, yeah. Put your Bible on that, stick it in your pocket, and you don't Right, and I'll never know, right? <laughs> we might get more Christians that way. <laughs> yeah, I can have my Blackberry, and, you know, I can have the whole Old and New Testament on there, and nobody will even know. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, and uh, as a side point, I do believe that Mortimer Adler did become a Christian later in life, something like when he was 80 years old. Oh, really? He he yeah, waited that yeah. long, huh? <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't look this up again, but I do seem to remember this from the 1980s <laughs> that he became a Christian. He's since dead now, but um, I'm pretty sure that is correct. Well, better late than never, I guess. <laughs> yep, absolutely. It's Just still like, it's kind of funny that he he decided, you know, at that late a stage in the game that. Well, it was convenient. Yeah, it suddenly became convenient. <laughs> right. That's right. So, who knows? Yeah, just look at uh, Anthony Flew. You know, here he was, this the most profound, famous atheist in the world. And he became a Christian. But he did it for logical reasons. He did it because of the evidence. You so, gotta oh, get, I guess you got... he didn't become a Christian. Now, let me correct that. He became a theist. Okay. So. Well, you got to give him a lot of credit for, you know, after being so invested in one belief to at some point be willing to yeah, change it. 50 years. Absolutely. A lot of people won't do that. Yeah. All right, so let's get Kirk, let's let's delve into the reasons behind all these these different reasons and if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks and I'm Kirk Hastings. And you can check us out on the internet at evidenceforfaith.com. You can email us at email. Just send it to email at evidenceforfaith.com. That's the number four, faith.com. You can listen to our podcast there. So we listed, for the last two shows, we've listed all these reasons why that people have why they shouldn't accept a certain belief. If Somebody comes along with evidence, argumentation, and says, X is true. They've got all these things going on in their mind that they say, nah, I don't think I'm going to accept that. 
right? Well, a, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them fit into this category called cognitive dissonance. Okay. And there's been a lot of research done in this area of cognitive dissonance, studying what it is, how it works, and how it makes people behave or think or adopt beliefs or reject beliefs, actually. Mm -hmm. Right. So what cognitive dissonance is, is when you have in your mind two beliefs that are in conflict. Now, you might think that it's something like the first belief is that the sentence A is true. And the other belief is that the sentence A is not true. Okay? Well, those are two opposite beliefs. And maybe I'm holding them in my mind. I have evidence both ways. Let's say that, let's pick something real instead of trying to be algebraic about it and calling it A. Let's pick O.J. Simpson, okay? So I've got a belief in my mind that O.J. Simpson is innocent. Now, I come across evidence that O.J. Simpson is guilty, all right? Is this the kind of thing that creates cognitive dissonance? No, not really. This isn't really what they're talking about in cognitive dissonance. In cognitive dissonance, you're talking about a belief that comes into conflict with some kind of belief about yourself. All right? Does that make right. sense? Yes. So some kind of yeah, some you're kind, kind of, of belief saying that that Believing whether O.J. was innocent or guilty isn't really cognitive dissonance. It's how you deal with the evidence for both sides. That can yeah, you be... would simply weigh those and pick one. Right? If one is more than the other, then you pick that one. Well, that's so... the intelligent way of doing it, but there's all kinds of reasons why people don't want to reason things out like that. Right. Well, here, so let's give some examples then. Let's say you're... O.J. Simpson's mother. Right. Okay. okay. Now you're going to have cognitive dissonance. Okay, yes. Because you've got a self-concept belief that's in conflict with the evidence now. You've got this belief that I raised my son properly. Right. O.J. would never harm a fly. Don't you hear that a lot when you hear these news stories, you know, when somebody murders somebody or something, and there's always somebody, like a neighbor or a friend or somebody, that they always interview on TV that, that says, oh, he was a really nice, quiet guy. I couldn't, I can't believe that he would do something like that. Yeah, you do. But now maybe it's because the person saying that just because they're ignorant of what the secret life this person really lived but uh -huh. the cognitive dissonance comes in when you've got hard evidence that shows the person is guilty, but you've got a vested interest somehow in your own self-belief. Let's, let's say you were a jury member who found O.J. innocent. Right. And now new evidence comes out that he was really guilty. Right. Are you likely to accept that or not? Does more that create cognitive dissonance? Yeah, more than likely you wouldn't. Yeah, you wouldn't accept it. You would have cognitive dissonance because you're likely to think of yourself as a good juror. Right. Right, I made a wise decision. In order to change your mind about the situation, you would have to admit that you made a mistake the first time. 
there you go. Bingo. Yep. Absolutely. That's oh. what causes cognitive dissonance. Right. So it's the kind of what they call angst, you know, of a belief <laughs> that conflicts with some kind of self-confidence. Right. Now, there's that joke I've told on the, the show before about a wife who brings her husband to the doctor and says, Doctor, you've got to help me. My husband thinks he's dead. <laughs> All uh -huh. right. So the doctor says, oh, don't worry about it. I'll help you. I can solve this problem. <laughs> so he begins to teach the guy that if you're dead, you don't bleed. And he takes him down to the hospital morgue, and they poke pins into the fingertips of dead people, and sure enough, they don't bleed. And eventually the guy comes to understand, okay, he says, I agree, dead men don't bleed. Right. Right as soon as he says that, the doctor grabs his finger, stabs a, a pin into the tip of his finger, and squeezes blood out. And he says, there, see, you really are alive. And the husband looks at his finger, looks at the blood, and says, well, I'll be darned. I guess dead people really do bleed. <laughs> this guy's a, got cognitive dissonance to spare. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. So that's a, a little joke to just kind of describe, you know, what what people will go through in order to avoid the angst of cognitive dissonance. We used to call that avoiding the obvious. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and a good example of that, I heard about a study that they did where they put video cameras into a waiting room at a car dealership. Okay, mm -hmm. so you know. When you've just bought a car, you've just agreed on the price, and you have to, they're doing some final paperwork. So, what they would do is they'd tell these people, okay, sit down right here. Now, in front of them on the coffee table in this waiting room, there'd be two magazines, okay? Mm -hmm. One of them on the cover of the magazine has an article telling them that the car they just bought is a piece of junk. It's a lemon. <laughs> it's a lemon. Right. And the other magazine has an article on the cover telling them that the car they just bought is a great car. Okay. <laughs> All right. What do you think people did? Uh, probably had a lot of angst. <laughs> so what did they do? How did they resolve that angst? That's a good question. Well, they picked up the magazine that had the article about that their car was great. Okay. So now, this is after this, they already closed the deal for the car, right? That's right. Okay, I see. They close the deal for the car. They're taken into the waiting room. They sit down, and the study was what percentage of time would they pick up the, car, the magazine that said something bad about their car they just bought or the magazine that said something good about it? Okay. And guess what? Almost everyone without exception, picks up the article that, about, that says something good about their car. Because they have a vested interest in it being a good car. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, yep. see, that's, so, that's funny. If that was me, I probably would have picked the one up criticizing it because I'd want to know, what's wrong with the car I just bought? <laughs> right. But what goes through people's minds is they have this, it, it affects their self-image. 
They don't want to think, oh, no, I made a mistake. Okay, right. Right? Okay. So, Got you. yeah, they don't want to think that, you know, I'm a lousy car buyer. They want to think, hey, I made the right decision. And I've already got this car paid for, so it's got to be a good car. (laughs) Yep. So really, cognitive dissonance forces you to into rationalization, just, you know, making up arguments to support your own view. And you know what? We hear this from the old Aesop's fables. I was just reading Aesop's fables last night and came across the fox and the grapes. Do you remember that one? Yep. Uh huh. Where this fox is tired, long, hard day, and thirsty, and he sees some grapes growing in a in a vine a little high up, and he tries to jump at them to refresh his slack his thirst. <laughs> he jumps and misses. He jumps again and misses. He takes a running leap and jumps and misses and can't <laughs> get at the grapes. So what does he say? Well, I probably I wasn't that thirsty after all. Well, it's called sour grapes before a reason. Those okay. grapes are just sour. They must be rotten grapes. <laughs> exactly. So that's that's where we get the term sour grapes from, from that Aesop's fable about uh, oh, okay. the wolf and the grapes. Jeez, I didn't know that. Oh, you didn't know that? Learn yeah, something that's... new every day. So when you say, when somebody says, you know, let's say they don't win a contest, and maybe maybe the... There's a, a contest to win a car, and the person doesn't win, right. and they come away saying, you know, that's a, that, that car doesn't run very well anyways. Or they might say, oh, that contest must be fixed. Exactly. That's called sour grapes. Got yeah. I yeah. got it. <laughs> it comes from Aesop's fable from, what, something like 1,000, I guess it's not 1,000 B.C., no. something like six or 700 B.C. Yeah, long time ago. <laughs> All right, how about let's jump into the world of religion and atheism. Where do we see examples of cognitive dissonance? All over the place. Yeah. Can you think <laughs> of specifically of an example of a religion that had a lot of cognitive dissonance sometime in the past? Well, let me see. Help do you me remember? Out. <laughs> do you remember when the Jehovah's Witnesses were claiming that the world was coming to an end. They've done that a few times, I think. Like yeah, three or four have. times they've set dates, haven't they? Yes, they have. Uh-huh. And guess what happens when that date comes and goes and, hey, no end of the world. Okay. All of a sudden you got a lot of cognitive dissonance going on. Okay, what do they say then? <laughs> oh, you don't remember what they said? Not specifically, no. I, I never hear anything afterwards. When when they make it's, these claims, you hear them all over the place, but then when the date passes, it's like dead silence. You never hear anything after that. <laughs> well, they were claiming that Jesus would return at the end of the world, so guess what? He really did return, only it was spiritual only. Okay. So he returned right. in spirit. He returned, not, but we didn't see him. That's right, because, yeah, he was <laughs> invisible. Okay. Got it. <laughs> so that's a that's an example of cognitive dissonance. And now, and, of course, you realize we have another group now that's saying yes, that the do. end of the world is coming on May 21st of this year. Exactly right. So okay, we're so see, get ready, everybody. You're going to see 
an example of cognitive dissonance, I have a feeling. Either two things are going to happen. Either it is going to happen on the 21st or on the 22nd, we're going to have a lot of cognitive dissonance. <laughs> yep. So now cognitive dissonance can be a good thing, though, because it can cause people to realize that they made a mistake and and get things straightened out. And that's that's If you deal with it honestly, yes. That's what happened to me, why I became a Christian. Yep. So I realized I'd made a mistake. The evidence was strong. Yep. Well, you have been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And please join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.